The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Social Coast Forum. Coverage continues Coverage continues. Uh, We're in Charleston, South Carolina, and we have a panel of folks to talk to, Tyler. And we're going to go to the third coast, as Don Davis has reminded us. We're talking about the Gulf of Mexico shoreline and the importance of climate adaptation and some of the social implications of that. And we have an amazing group of people here, uh, most of which are associated with LSU. Go Tigers, congratulations on the national championship, uh, and, and, and a person on the panel from the great state of Mississippi as well. Let me just do a quick introduction of who's going, who you're going to be hearing from. Uh, Gil, uh, Craig Gill is the director of the University Press of Mississippi, a publication house associated with the university. Uh, Jessica Sexnider is with Louisiana Sea Grant and specializes in a really interesting topic I'm looking forward to learning more about, cemeteries along the shoreline that are threatened by sea level rise. Uh, Matthew Bethel, also with Louisiana Sea Grant, who's a specialist in indigenous populations and tribal issues along the coast of Louisiana. Is that fair, I hope? Uh, Carl Basso, also with Louisiana Sea Grant, who works very closely with Don Davis, who are investigating shrimp and the history of shrimping on the shoreline, I think is sort of the general topic. So what we have here are a whole bunch of folks from Louisiana, Mississippi on the Gulf Coast who are engaged in the professional evaluation of what's happening on the shore and climate. Is that a fair intro, you guys? I think that's pretty fair, yes. <laughs> so I think for a while, uh, if y'all, when you're talking and say, this is Gil, uh, uh, it, Craig Gill so that people get an association of your voice and they'll know who they're listening to. But uh, welcome y'all to the American Shoreline Podcast and thank you for taking time out of your conference schedule to share the work that you're doing. Thank you for having us. Well, I think we're going to start with uh, with with uh, Craig Gill, 
uh, from University Press uh, from Mississippi. Craig, give us an overview of what we're going to talk about today. Okay, I'm happy to do that. I'm, uh, as you said, the director of the University Press of Mississippi. And one of the things that we are doing right now in conjunction with Louisiana Sea Grant is a book series, America's Third Coast. Uh, it's a series of books focusing on the Gulf Coast, uh, not just the, the literal erosion of the coast, but what happens to the life, the history, the culture of a place when that place is disappearing. So it's not just disappearing land, but it's disappearing people. Uh, at, at present, there are seven books in the series. Uh, the people that you're talking with here that you'll be talking with are the authors of some of those books and some of the forthcoming books as well. And we're trying to take the specialized knowledge that people have, especially the specialized knowledge that shows up in papers and projects, and make it available to the general public. You know, I've got to ask, when you're uh, framing up a book project like this, Obviously, we have the geography. We know what the third coast is. Uh, we can point to it on a map. But when you get into what the various subjects are going to be and you have to slice and dice the coastal zone, this is something that we yeah. struggle with all the time. How how did you approach that? And, and where did you land in terms of the various categories of you know subject matter that these books will cover? Well, a lot of it depends on what the, the scholars are doing. Uh, so you can't publish a book if there's not somebody who's interested in the topic, and that interest has to sustain them over a course of years. So uh, a lot of what the decisions that we're making are we know what we're good at. We're not going to be publishing the super technical uh, environmental study. We want to know well, what's the impact of what's being studied. So we're looking at somebody like Jessica, who, who, whose book, I'm going to put in a plug here, it's part of my job, uh, Jessica Schecksneider, whose book, Fragile Grounds, Louisiana's Endangered Cemeteries, is available anywhere you buy good books. Uh, it, she starts with the premise of this is happening, this change is happening, and then she finds something that's unique that, no, that other people aren't looking at and then traces the implications of that. So it's not so much a division of you know, Louisiana versus Texas as it is a cultural question and, and is what's happening in one place happening in other places as well. Hmm. So, Gil, you, uh, Craig, you must be a favorite among all of these guests because you're the publisher and the person who decides what books get printed. Is that your role in this situation? Uh, that, that is, broadly speaking, my role. I'm sometimes the favorite and sometimes I'm the bad guy. Of so, course, um, <laughs> depending on what you decide. But, but uh, yes, I'm, I'm the director of the press, but more specifically, I'm the acquiring editor for these books, for this series. Okay, so let's start talking to the authors, and we're going to start with with Jessica Snecksnyder, whose specialty is on these coastal cemeteries. Go ahead and tell us again the title of the book and give us an overview of the work you're doing and the book. And I assume this one is published already. It is. Um, I'm Jessica Schecksnyder. My book is titled Fragile Grounds, Louisiana's Endangered Cemeteries. And what I've done is tie the social and cultural aspects of the state to the hard science realities of what is going to be lost. As Louisiana's peoples are pushed inland due to hurricanes, storm surge, coastal erosion, they have to leave evidence of their histories, such as their cemeteries, behind. You can't take a cemetery and pick it up and move it with you. And oftentimes, as people move inland, these cemeteries are they're being neglected. They're forgotten. Um, and that's something that is such a good cultural part of our state that is often overlooked 
in the general cultural talk of, you know, what's happening to these, you know, endangered sites as they're left behind. Wow. It sounds uh, like a tragic situation. And I'll have to say that I think Louisiana is one of the leading states in terms of looking at climate migration landward. The, uh, the, the universities and others that I've talked to are, are sort of mapping this. They're sort of figuring out where people are going to go. And so your, t- your focus is really on what can't be moved and how does that affect the community. Tell us what was the big takeaway from your research and analysis or what, 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 would you, what was important about what you discovered? Well, first of all, there are more than 500 known cemeteries in Louisiana's coastal zone. And of course, I couldn't document all 500, but what I did document was 138 cemeteries. I walked the perimeter and created polygon maps so that it was the entire site. I took more than 16,000 photographs over the course of five years time. So to create a digital record for the state of Louisiana to you know, save that which we can't physically save, but at least we'll have a digital record for the long term and for future generations to know what what was there and what might be gone. And talking about climate change and people moving inland, one of the um, cemetery sites that I documented was Iltishan Charles, which is a um, Homa Chittimacha Cherokee. Biloxi, Chittimacha, Cherokee tribe. There's 75, roughly 75 French-speaking Indians on this island. And they have a cemetery there, which has 50 known graves. But according to tribal legend, there are roughly 200 people buried in the cemetery. Now, they are going to be some of our nation's first climate refugees, but the cemetery can't be moved. And that's partially due to the the tribal um, regulations and what they have decided as a tribe to do. But even if it were to be moved, it's costly. And where would they move it to where it's not going to be endangered in the future as well? So I got to ask here, you know, one of my favorite movies for the audience out there is Easy Rider. And there's just an iconic scene in a uh, New Orleans cemetery, above ground situation, uh, which I think was because of the like water table. And you just couldn't you didn't want to go down. So you had to put them above ground. Just a very interesting style of, of cemetery. Uh, and I do think it's a cultural kind of thing about the region. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm interested in the history here. How you know you've you've had the opportunity to go and check these things out. Um, are they all above ground? Uh, do they kind of look the same? Is the construction similar? And uh, what's the history uh, behind these cemeteries? Um, when what are some of the oldest graves? Uh, things like that. Okay, first let's let's take a step back to that above ground because of the water table situation. Um, that's it's an absolute myth 
that Louisiana has above ground cemeteries because of the water table. It's it has nothing. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> we don't like to you know disseminate myths on the show. So was that that should have been in the movie review? I sh- I'm going to have to write something on like Rotten Tomatoes. It has nothing to do with the water table nor the law. Louisiana's above ground cemeteries are due to French and Spanish tradition carried from the old world. In fact, New Orleans first cemetery with St. Peter was actually an in-ground burial site. And once that was full, then they created St. Louis one um, in the in the style of French burials, similar to what you would see at like Père Lachaise in France. Um, so, but if you go to New Orleans and take a cemetery tour, the tour guide is absolutely going to tell you that it's there because of the water table. But something, you know, just going back to culture that people don't know is New Orleans has a large Jewish population. Those grounds are, those burials are directly in ground. They're not popping up because of the water table. So it's a mixture of folklore, in fact, about why the cemeteries are above ground. So you mentioned the town, the, the Native American community, and you'll have to pronounce it for me. It's Ile de Jean Charles. Thank you. And and the state is in the process of buying out that town and has bought a new site and going to rebuild and relocate this community. This has already been decided. It was a rather torturous process to come to that decision. Um, I'm interested in, as you said, that the, the, the folks there decided, the, the community decided to leave that cemetery in place. Can you, can you, uh, in, uh, illuminate for our audience a little bit the nature of the discussion that surrounds these I guess they're going to be abandoned cemeteries can you talk about that and what does that sound like in the community dialogue uh, is, there, is there frustration that nothing can be done it, help us understand what that sounds like okay whenever I was working with um, it's Chief Albert Knockhan and Father Rock Knockhan. These are, it's the chief, and Father Rock is the Catholic priest on the island. And they had to make a decision with their community members of what they were going to take with them when they moved inland. And something that often comes up and is not thought about is something called NAGPRA which is the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. And that figured into this about how and when Native American graves can be moved or disturbed. And they made a community decision not to move that site. Well, what an interesting topic. Never thought of that. Uh, Matthew uh, Bethel with Louisiana Sea Grant, you work on indigenous populations. Tell us what your work is. Just give our audience a flavor of what you're doing these days and your book, too. Sure. This is Matt uh, Bethel. And yeah, my book is forthcoming. Um, I'm a little slower in writing. I, I talk about as, as slow as I write, so mine's not out yet. But um, but basically, the crux of that work is mapping, which we talked about with Jessica talked about as well as you you mentioned. Um, and what I'm mapping is uh, the common ground that we find in priorities and. Um, aspirations for these communities and i work with you know i've worked in coastal louisiana for uh 10 plus years now with indigenous and non-indigenous communities on this this mapping and what we're doing is uh uh, you know with the land loss and all the changes on the coast there's a lot of coastal restoration activity there 
and the state you know they the local opinion and the local perspective has been kind of pushed to the side or not um, included in that process in a meaningful way and so that was the crux of what I'm doing is is mapping the local priorities for restoration but also with uh, some of the indigenous communities like Ildijan Charles or Pointe Shan who are very vulnerable to things like sea level rise, the land loss that we just mentioned, uh, storm surge events. Uh, you know, they're looking at uh, hazard, local hazard mitigation to these, these um, uh, coastal storms, coastal issues. And so um, I'm helping them on more of a local scale and then more of a broad scale working with these communities uh, say across the Barataria Basin to map their preferences um, and their priorities for coastal restoration projects to then help them communicate those needs to the state who is implementing the state master plan. I get it. So a bit of an advocate for local communities and trying to bring their point of view into the very complicated world of the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority uh, for the listeners around the country, I, how many billions of dollars in restoration spending is in the queue for Louisiana? It's a bunch. Billions with a B. Billions yeah. with a B. And the CPRA administers that. Right. And sometimes the state, now I've heard great things about the Louisiana state planning process. I'm a fan of it. But what you're saying is the perspective of the local communities is a critical element of the decision making process. Yes, it is. They have a lot of observational knowledge. I mean, you know, I'm a, my background is, is geography, mapping, like I, I mentioned, but also environmental science. Uh, so I'm a scientist, physical scientist, but I partner with social scientists on this work. And we you know, go out, we experience days in the boat out with uh, locals and they tell us about what is most important to them. And then we, so we basically start by listening. You know, they, they have a lot of information to contribute to the process, but they just really would like someone uh, to listen to them. And that's what we do. That's how we start the process. And then uh, once we understand some of their priorities, we start trying to put together some maps. And it's an iterative process. We're going back and forth as we develop these maps to make sure we're, you know, hearing, you know, making sure that we're mapping what uh, they want us to map and that we're not missing anything. Maybe, um, you know, making sure we heard them right and that kind of thing. So, and, you know, besides being an iterative process to develop these maps, uh, it's also a two-way transfer of knowledge. So it's an opportunity not just to collect information regarding their traditional ecological knowledge, which TEK, so that's just what we've been talking about, that observational knowledge they have about the changes that they witness in the environment, and that environment is what they depend on for their livelihood. So they're very in tune with these changes and the coast has always been changing so they've developed this adaptation capacity to these changes and i mean now it's the rate of those changes is is exponentially increasing so they're reaching out more and more to outsiders to help them uh continue to adapt in these in these very dynamic places and so that's part of what we do uh you know and like i said earlier we want to get this information um collected and 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 mapped but we also want to take the opportunity to share with them the science so so we're you know like i said i'm a scientist but i don't have all the answers so when we're out with these people in the in the marshes and in their boats you know they they have questions that maybe i can't answer but i can hook them up with people working on the state master plan and say engineers or other scientists that we 
we help get them out and facilitate that connection and help bridge the science and the local knowledge. Matt, uh, I find that to be so cool and fascinating. May I press you for a story of uh, maybe something that you learned from a community out there that you didn't know and that might have changed your perspective? Sure, yeah, that happens all the time, actually. Um, You know, each trip out with a a local is unique. Uh, We always... Uh, it's fun. I mean, they're unique characters. We, we learn a lot. Um, you know, one, one uh, trip in particular, to answer your question, that I, um, we were out with this oyster fisherman for the whole day. I mean, he was taking us around Adams Bay, Barataria Bay, showing us uh, a community where he had uh, grown up in a Croatian community there. And it was a thriving oyster community. He took us to the spot where he grew up and when he parked the boat we looked around it was nothing but open water and so uh he actually had uh don davis's book who's going to be speaking in a minute uh washed away and uh don had done a then and now kind of thing where he got found old photos and um and you know showed what the place looked like then and what it looks like now and the guy uh, turned the pages and found an old photo of his thriving uh, oyster Croatian community that was in that same spot that we were looking at and all you could see was some uh, pilings and, and rock jetties there where the homes that were in this photo used to be and so uh, so he was showing us all of this land loss that he's uh, had to endure over his lifetime and then as we were headed back to the dock in Burris uh, which is Lower Plaquemines Parish along the Mississippi River he said, well, guys, if y'all have, and it was late afternoon, we thought we were headed in back to the boat. And he said, guys, if y'all uh, have some time, I want to take you and show you uh, something else. And so we're like, sure. I mean, we got this opportunity. We're going to make the most of it. And he took his little outboard boat through the the um, the locks in Buras and out into the Mississippi River. And we were all kind of white knuckling it because, you know, we're out and there's big barges going by and, and uh, he's taking us down the Mississippi River past where the levee protection runs. Uh, and then it just becomes like a rock um, on the sides of the Mississippi River. And there was a splay in, in a, on the other side of the Mississippi River where water was freely flowing through. Uh, it had opened up some of the rocks there. And he navigated his small uh, boat down in there, and he said, I want to show you this. And so when we got down into the, into the marshes on the other side, it was just thriving. I mean, there was, there was uh, tall reeds. There was all kinds of fresh marsh vegetation. There was land. And he said, I want to show you this because people think that oyster fishermen, from you, if you look at it, the media, they're against any kind of coastal restoration, or any, especially diversions, freshwater diversions. There's that that contention with the state uh, and the oyster fishermen. But he said, look, here, uh, this, I want to show you this because I want to juxtapose it what I showed you this morning where the land was being lost. And here, you know, the fresh water being introduced in the sediment is doing a good, is doing really good for the marsh and the land. It's building land. And I want to show you that because uh, as an oyster fisherman, I understand that there are places in the right time at the right amount where freshwater diversions are beneficial or good so we're not just totally against it it's just where when and how much 
Well, for the benefit of the audience around the country, there are substantial discussions going on in the management of the lower Mississippi River with large diversion projects planned to take Mississippi River sediment and water and turn it out of the river channel into these bay systems and start to rebuild land and all of this. Very Delta dispatchers are showing ASPN. This is a common topic, the Mid-Baratria diversion, and I think there's a couple others. And, what, and, and I think you're right. My impression is the oystermen and the shrimpers and the folks who rely on the environment are saying, hey, this is going to wreck the whole system. Don't do it. But clearly it's a more complex issue than that. Absolutely. And they understand that complexity. I mean, it gets that that gets kind of lost in some of the media coverage. Uh, but, you know, this was an, an oyster fisherman who had been totally wiped out by the uh, Carnarvon diversion years before he had established his his oysters in uh, Breton Sound or and and the Carnarvon diversion uh, totally wiped him out. He had to reestablish. It took years to reestablish wow. there in Adams Bay. So he already had kind of a a beef with uh, freshwater diversions. But even though it totally, he said he lost millions. He had to reestablish. Took years. But even though he went through all of that, he still understood the advantages of that coastal restoration technique. Again, in the right place. I'm a geographer. It's all about mm-hmm. where. Uh, you put it and how much and when you know I think you know Matt one of the things that we find to be true when we come to these conferences you know we could we could read papers we could uh, watch YouTube videos and see pictures of these places but I think it's just so much more meaningful when you're out there on the water the way you describe the white knuckle experience of getting there I mean clearly this left an impression on you and uh, I just think it's, you know, he he took you out of the way to show you, you know, and I, I, th- I just, I, I thought that was a great story. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Well, two let, real, real quick. Anymore. Yes, Don, please, Don Davis. Let me add a footnote. Sea um, Grant, Louisiana Sea Grant Program has underwritten um, a film documentary called Common Ground. And the purpose was simply to listen to the public. Pay attention to what the locals say. And there was some reluctance from CPRA. However, they recognized quickly that maybe there is something to be said. As this program developed, there was one gentleman who lived in the same area on the west side of the Mississippi his entire life. And he simply pointed out that the way you're going to run this particular diversion is wrong. And he explained it succinctly. Well, of course, those people running it and their computer models and the wizardry said they were right. And he just asked a very simple question. Come visit me when we have a south or a north wind. They were wrong. And, uh, and the question I have is, did they listen at CPRA? They did, <laughs> but it, but it not was, voluntarily. No, that. no, not necessarily. Maybe embarrassment. Sure. But it pointed out that you can have the best models in the world, but the people who live there are your best sources of information. Got it. And if you just take the time to listen with no agenda, you might learn more than you thought. Carl and I were involved in a project. Um, he may chi- chime in, I hope he does, which we were helping with the master plan. And we learned that uh, the, 
Don, for our audience, the state of Louisiana's coastal master plan, which is the spending and project priorities for the state. Every five years. Every five years. And we were asked to come in as humanist. And the people who were designing this plan ask us, where do they trap nutria? Where do they trap um, muskrat? And we go, you don't know that? Well, well, actually, and this is Carl Bronso, if I can just chime in. Jump in, their, Carl. Their, fir- their first question to me was, how do you talk to those people? Which I think spells volumes about the the gap between them and the established indigenous communities along the Hold shores. on. Can you elaborate? What do you mean? Like, what, was, what does that mean? Help me understand. How do you talk to those people? Is that like, how do you do it because they're terrible folks? Or is it like, we can't understand them? What do you, what do you mean? I think all of the above. <laughs> that was the impression I got. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's, it, and, and you're right, I think when the state planners in Baton Rouge and the CPRA officials, they're working on this huge uh, agenda, billions of dollars, Matt, as you said, in spending. Uh, and I'm glad that they reached out to you, Carl, and they reached out to Don Davis and said, help us get into these communities because we do, it tells me that they want to know and that it's not natural. I mean, this is a subculture of America down in the bayou. I, I'm not from down there. It is like a foreign country to me when I hear people talk about it. And so I do think it's the accessibility, Matt, that you're providing. And Carl, you're down and you're in the community, you're on the boat, you get to know these people. What do you think, Don? Well, you're right. And we, Carl and I, successfully lobbied to get a field trip. And we took them to Pointe-de-Chain, we took them to Eugen Charles, and we were explaining the cultural realities. And one of the questions we posed to them, is there anybody in this van that can make one phone call and your congressman or senator will return it? And there was somewhat of a shock. And we looked at them and said, well, everybody here has a grandparent that can talk to the grandparent of the senator or representative, and they will return their call. Wow. Now it was absolute silence. We get done, and we're going through, and the question came up, how do we talk to people? And Carl said instantly, honestly. And with respect. They said they're going to be mad. We said, do you have any idea how mad they're going to be when they call the senator or representative who represents their district? It got quiet again. Wow. Just a sidebar that I think is relevant at this point. I don't think that we talked about the knowledge gap between the, the outsiders and the insiders. One of the things that outsiders have a really tough time doing, uh, wrapping their heads around, is the fact that Louisiana has the most sedentary population in the country. I mean, people are living within 10, 15, 20 miles of where their families set down roots in the 18th century. The The fact is that the, the land is sacred to them, and moving even a short distance is hugely traumatic. Don and I interviewed Um, someone in Vermilion Parish who talked about her daughter who was undergoing a rather traumatic divorce. The daughter's house had been flooded three times in a five-year period, and she decided that she needed to relocate to higher ground next to her mother. Now, we're talking about five linear miles away from where she was living. 
but her husband refused to accompany her because he said, it's too different over there. I will never feel comfortable. Wow. I think we, I want to go deeper into that. And it, and I had a conversation in New Orleans on this topic and it really opened my eyes to the connection between uh, place and identity. And that this isn't simply a matter of, gee whiz, it's a house, it's a better house, it has new lights, it's a physical feature. This is something, as you said, is deeply ingrained in people's self-understanding. And when folks say, hell, they just ought to just leave, that is the least, that is the laziest thing you can say, and it shows a complete lack of understanding. Can y'all talk about that? Well, can I, can I add something before I pass the mic? There was a study done back in the 1990s about displaced Louisianians, and people uh, before the oil bus of 1985 were pressured under tremendous family pressure to stay put and accept jobs for which they were overqualified, simply because the families did not want them to leave. I had a brother who moved to uh, Mandeville, which is near New Orleans, and as far as my mother was concerned, he could have been on Mars. Um, but the, the central theme in that study down in the 90s was that none of the people that they studied who were displaced for economically living elsewhere, none of them ever felt comfortable in their new surroundings. They never felt like they were part of that new community. And there's, I think there's analysis and in, in investigations that show that there are detrimental health effects of these dislocations, even as ne- necessary as they may be, as the island melts away and there's no place to be. And as Matt said, there's a bunch of piles, pilings there, but no more structures. Uh, Jessica, what, what about that? One of the things that I wanted to say, and this kind of ties into what Carl was just saying, is my book opens up with a quote from Benjamin Franklin, Poor Richard's Almanac, and it says, show me your cemeteries and I will tell you what kind of people you have. And I think that's powerful. And it ties back to Louisiana. As I worked on this project and I mapped cemeteries from the west side of the state to the southeast side of the state, you can actually see in the names on the headstones, you can see the geographic identities of the people of the state. You can actually see how our state was settled. It is the cultural identity of the state is told in the headstones. This sounds, I have to ask, is there any chance that these headstones are going to be preserved or is this all just going to be, you know, inundated and lost? Is there any, is this history going to be erased it's really not movable um it's the the thought of moving it is it's great and people want to talk about moving it but think about just new orleans what we call the cities of the dead how would you move that and where would you move it to and one of the things that people say is oh just move it to higher ground well for instance one of the stories in my book is um, denim springs it's my hometown I'm nearly 100 miles inland from the coast. In 2016, we got a storm that dumped 32 inches of water in 48 hours. Two rivers converged and sent um, six to eight feet of water into the town. 90% of our city went 
underwater, including our cemeteries. And that's just something that, you know, if you're going to move them, how far inland is safe? If you're that's 100 miles inland and it's still happening. So it's a very delicate subject. Wow. Uh, Matt, what would you like to add? Yeah, I just wanted to follow on what Jessica was saying. It's related because um, uh, one of the communities I work with, indigenous community, Pornashen, which is near Ile de Jean Charles, uh, within about two miles as the crow flies, um, they've been active. One of their highest priorities from the work I've been doing with them is to save their uh, the, the claimed sacred sites, which are mounds, uh, shell middens uh, you may be familiar with. And they're very much endangered. A lot of, uh, you know, the, the erosion going on in the wetlands outside of Pointe Chien, you know, those, wet, those same wetlands contain many mounds that the, the Pointe Chien tribe claim. So they've been working um, especially to uh, protect these mounds, but not thinking about moving them, but rather protect them in place. So we've been working with them and NOAA to uh, – and uh, Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, who is a NGO there in Louisiana, to put on oyster shell on a one particular midden or mound that was badly being eroded because of the oil canals that have been cut through those marshes. It's just amazing to see. It's like a web network of these oil canals, and one of those canals was cut right beside that midden, and over time that canal has widened, eroded, and it was eating into that midden. And so they reached out, and that's, a, that's an adaptation strategy that they've used, which, you know, traditionally a closed community, but increasingly reaching out more and more for outside help. Uh, I, I, fascinating subject, but it's about the sociological implications of this changing climate and what to do with it on a human level. That's what this conference really focuses on, and a great example. Uh, Craig, what would you like to add? Well, I just wanted to make one larger point here that you, we've got with us some uh, incredible expertise on the state of Louisiana, especially South Louisiana. But when you talk about stories, when you talk about local knowledge, uh, this is true everywhere. Uh, these kinds of stories exist throughout the Gulf South, that, throughout the Gulf Coast and other places as well. And a lot of what this conference is doing, a lot of when we talk about publishing a book, uh, is finding that local knowledge, finding those local stories, whether it's the Gulf Coast of Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana or wherever, that these stories uh, need to be captured. They need to be captured now. Uh, the other thing, and this is sort of an ominous note, so maybe somebody else can end on a better note, talking about Ilda Jean Charles, you're talking about, I believe somebody said 75 people. That's the absolute tip of the iceberg. What happens when it's 75,000 people? And... Uh, is there a plan for that? Uh. Right. I want to, uh, Carl, you and uh, Don have worked together on shrimp, and so I want to change subjects here, if you don't mind, Don. Can you tell us about uh, what your work is, what the book is, if you guys have done the book yet? Give us an overview of the focus of your, of your professional work. <laughs> they're trying to decide who's going to go first, and they're both being too <laughs> humble. Well, apparently I drew the short straw. Don and I have been collaborating on various research projects since about 2006. Don is a cultural geographer. I'm a colonial historian, and we tend to look at research problems from opposite ends of a telescope, and we like to think that the, the fusion of our research approaches brings uh, to us a more complete, more comprehensive understanding than we could achieve individually. 
I'm going to stop because I want to catch this. I didn't quite follow it. You're a cultural historian. Tell me that. This is Don. I'm a cultural geographer. Geographer. And you, how would you describe I, your. Well, I trained it as a colonial historian, but I would historian. probably be called a social historian at this point. And you said opposite ends of the. A telescope or a yeah, microscope. Yeah, explain that. Well, basically, Don looks at things from the perspective of the present, and I tend to look at things from the perspective of the 18th century. And hopefully we find common ground somewhere in the middle. Yeah, what we've done is we take a holistic approach. We can tell you a great deal about the decapod, but we want to go beyond the decapod. That is the backstory. So in the case of what we're working right now, it's Asian Cajun fusion. Shrimp from the bayou, from the bay to the bayou. The bay is San Francisco Bay. We believe that most people have no clue that the first international market for shrimp in North America came from San Francisco. And Louisiana participated in that because of the cultural diffusion of shrimp drying from San Francisco Bay to the wetlands of Louisiana. And if you're familiar with it, it's a landscape that can't make up its mind if it wants to be land or water. I can show you USGS quadrangles that do not have a five-foot contour. It is a surveyor's nightmare. It's a politician's nightmare. It's a census taker's nightmare, and the police are going to ignore it because the maps simply say no man's land, unfit for human habitation, and worthless. And yet there are people there. (laughs) Yes, in large numbers. And we're taking the position that in understanding the shrimp, you have to begin as drunkard's food to an Epicurean novelty to mandatory distribution of protein during World War I and World War II that most people have no clue. Indeed, your audience has no clue of the magnitude of the canned shrimp industry, much less of the dried product. Okay, there's so much there I want to understand. Carl, what would you like to add to that overview? Well, Don's correct, and I think the common misconception is that this is a native-grown industry. Yeah. Uh, at perhaps even introduced by the French because there was a Cajun connection to the industry for so long in the 20th century. But the French who came here in the uh, early 18th century had a very different mindset. As Don mentioned, for them, shrimp was drunkard's food. And people who were associated with the industry were troglodytes living in coastal caves. So they didn't want to have anything to do with it, even though they were starving most of the time. Uh, much the same way that uh, Cajuns today would not touch nutria, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not until the Asians began to come in in the post-Civil War period that we have a real commercial seafood industry. I, it, it, that is absolutely news to me. I've always assumed that the shrimpers down in the bayou and the Cajun community has been doing this since they showed up, and it was always a staple, and they made gumbo, and that was the whole deal. And what you're saying is it was actually in an import, and this has got to drive some folks crazy down in Louisiana, from California. Those crazy people. <laughs> well, <laughs> well it, they, actually, they were Chinese refugees who came in by way of okay. California. It, it, 
it shows the connectivity with one person that starts from the present to the past and another from the past to the present. The overlap is considerable. And so what, what you need to understand is that because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was in place between 1882 and 1943, for 61 years, Chinese could not come to this country at all. When it was repealed during World War II, 104 visas were allowed. That may explain why there are places called Chinatown. It's where you had your comfort level. And you could not have any labor job. You had to have an LLC, hence restaurants and laundries. But in Louisiana, we have the document from a Chinese, Yifu, who actually patented the shrimp drying platform circa 1870. In 1875, we had the first canned shrimp in this country perfected in New Orleans. In 1868, we had the first manufacturing of commercial ice in New Orleans. So the backstory overlaps, but again, the only thing people see now is shrimp in a refrigerated locker somewhere. So tell us about the, the emergence of the canned shrimp industry in Louisiana and, and how big and how important was that? It was huge. At one time, South Louisiana had some of the world's biggest seafood canneries in the world. Um, the, the canning process in its early days, particularly the beginning of the 20th century, was associated with some of the most egregious child labor problems in the, this country's history. The canneries generally relied on Eastern European immigrants, generally called Bohemians, and local canneries contacted labor brokers in Baltimore, where there was an established uh, cannery industry processing primarily oysters. And they brought in trainloads of Bohemians on a seasonal basis, and these were primarily women and children who were pressed into service in seafood sheds. And from what, uh, Eastern Europe, you said, so? Polish, primarily, uh, but other Eastern European countries as well. But they all were identified under the Bohemian umbrella. And what Carl and I have done, using historical newspapers and the fact that the Dunbar family who developed the canning industry advertised their product as either Dunbar shrimp or Barataria shrimp, we can go through newspaper archives and find grocery stores advertising Barataria shrimp and uh, Dunbar shrimp. Now remember, we're starting in 1875. In 1878, we have a newspaper advertisement from a newspaper in Honolulu, Hawaii, advertising Barataria shrimp. You asked about distribution? Welcome to our world. By 1900, it was in Alaska. We have the data for almost every state, and before Henry Ford, develop the assembly line which would allow you to have trucks it was in every state so the most 
Important words in the vocabulary, the delivery system was giddy up and whoa. Okay. I've got, I got to jump in here. Wow. So I've got two questions and I'm going to save the, the first question is a little bit more like, hey, let's just, you know, take me here. Uh, if you, if I were to open a can of like 1870 shrimp that was canned by the, by the Bohemians, uh, what, what am I looking at? How, are these big, are these jumbos? What, what do we got in there? Well, even more importantly, you'd be concerned if you're talking about in the 1870s before the process was refined, you're talking about hand-soldered cans with lead solder that leached into the product inside. Secondly, because of the chemical reaction between the shrimp itself, the flesh, and the can lining, you would look at shrimp that were discolored turning black by the time you open the can when it reached its ultimate destination. So, I mean, were the, these were, uh, uh, who was consuming these? I mean, was, was, this, was this high fare or was this kind of basic protein, you know, kind of, what, what, what was the purpose of, of eating shrimp, you know? What happened was for a while, the shrimp cocktail became a new vogue cuisine element. The advertising of the Shrimp Canners Association was amazing. So shrimp allowed you to have a, a novelty item on your table. They were marketed brilliantly. That is, if you were the Dunbar Shrimp Company, you had maybe five to seven different labels, all packaged in the same plant. But when you sold your product in Portland, Maine to four different grocery stores, you made sure each grocery store had a different label so you didn't get competitive at undercutting prices. And believe me, that was done in 1880s. Wow. Okay, second question. Uh, and this is this one's, I think, we, I think we're, we're circling around. Obviously, these shrimp are a major economic uh, Shrimping must have been just hugely big money for this area. But my question is, you know, why do we give a shit about the shrimp? Like it's I mean, I know that it's culturally very important uh, for the Gulf Coast. Um, but let me ask you guys, like, why are you I mean, you, you both have dedicated so much energy into studying this rich history. Tell our audience why we should care. Well, first of all, it's one of the most important renewable resources on the Gulf Coast. And secondly, in the course of my lifetime, and I'm 68 years old, the course of my lifetime, we've gone from a situation in which the American producers, the American shrimpers, produce 95% of the shrimp consumed in this country to a period today where they're producing less than 5%. They're under siege because of uh, enormous imports, primarily from Asia. Why would we ignore the economic driver that allowed people to survive? And why wouldn't we care about their history? Mm -hmm. We only don't care about the history because we haven't taken the time to learn a damn thing. Right. Yeah, I completely think that's correct. And why I think it's important is there is still a connection between the environmental health of our coastal waters and the culture and the people and the industry and the economy the entire it's the food it, it's the food it's infused in 
if you're talking about the history of the Gulf Coast, you can't avoid this stuff. You have to talk about oysters and shrimping and all of the other natural resource-based ec- economy and subsistence living and economic exploitation of those resources. Well, it's, it's like the cod fishermen. What are these guys going to do? If they're out of business, and that's the is that the question now? You're talking, uh, Don, about the retrospective look at this issue and the present look in at the issue. What is the state of? Are we in danger of losing this entire culture of Gulf shrimping? Five percent of the market now is in uh, is American. That's a stunning number. I didn't know that. What I think the real realization is cannery rows around the corner, and the reason I say that is. To a Louisianian, it's sacrilegious not to buy wild-caught shrimp. Mm. But to the consumer, Popeye's gives you all you want. There's not a Chinese buffet where you can't get all you want. Yeah. And the reason is five billion pounds per year come from India. And it's the big elephant in the room with little ears. Five billion pounds of imported shrimp from India yearly. It reached that mark in 2018. And this is mostly aquaculture raised. It's or? A, well, they use lots of terms: pond, okay. farm. Right. Yes. And so, what you're looking at is to use a word that has surfaced with the recent virus attack in China. Mm. It is pandemic distribution of a product overlooking. The working coast. Wow. Wow. Man, you know, okay. This is why we came to the Social Coast Forum because the considerations and the perspective that you guys are bringing into the understanding of the coastal zone is really, really key. And I have to say, when we go to ASBPA and the technical conferences or the CPAR RA conference where there's it's all engineers and models and, you know, levees and marsh restoration, all of that. You just want all of this conversation to be in that space because this is the, the and this is what I kind of like about what we're, all of the interviews that we've done here, the focus on the human dimension of what's happening on the American shoreline, the community basis, understanding that history, the economics, the transformation of these places and the culture that goes with it is the work you guys are doing. And I got to think, 25 years from now they're going to all be thanking you guys for for capturing these stories and understanding as this transformation occurs and we lose this texture of the coast i mean it's sort of like people going back and listening to all those wpa recordings of all the blues musicians down in the delta you're like damn somebody was smart to go talk to those guys because it's such a rich vein of america we like to think that when you think of resiliency, which has gone through enormous amount of academic brouhaha, what it means, well, it's tattooed to the people of South Louisiana's soul. And where Carl and I work, we do not even flinch a minute that we understand that the people who you, we interview are not aliens. Many of those are just friends we haven't met yet. And so when you talk about human dimensions, we live it. When you talk about storytelling, we live it. Our hat goes off to Craig and his people. We tried to shop our notion to other presses. The book series. Exactly. The Third Coast book series. We tried to shop it with other book series. 
Carl has some familiarity with how a press operates. He was the director of the University Press of, Miss, of Louisiana, Louisiana Tech. No, ULL. <laughs> All, too many acronyms. And without even thinking, Craig agreed in under two minutes. Yeah, I want to hear about that, Craig. Uh, these guys came clamoring in the door with this notion of, you know what, we need to do a whole book series and publish this on the third coast and this this really kind of amorphous topic of the culture and the community. I don't want to say amorphous, but it's not, you know, it, it, and, and, it, and, and you instantly recognized the value of that and signed this up. Tell us about that conversation and why it mattered to the university press in Mississippi? Well, I think part of the answer is, is what you just said. We're the University Press of Mississippi. This matters in Mississippi. We represent the eight universities. We represent the state and the region. And that region is the Gulf South. And so there's a direct connection for us, for what we do, for the books that we're trying to publish for our audience. Uh, we also have a track record. Uh, uh, the University Press has published more books on Cajun and, and Creole life and folklore uh, than any other publisher in the world. It's something that we've been doing for a long time. So we were already in the region. We know Lafayette. We know the, the people that Carl and Don know. So uh, you build from your strength. We already had a strength in South Louisiana. We wanted to do more. And we also wanted to make sure that we were relevant. Uh, again, we're in Mississippi, so you mentioned the Delta Blues earlier. We have a lot of books on the Delta Blues, but then you take that strength and you build up to do other books on American music of all kinds. Uh, we have books on the Gulf South, so we also have a huge number of books on the Caribbean. Uh, that's an area where now, right now, all those books on the Caribbean are on literature and history and culture, but we want to do the same kind of environmental work, the same kind of work we're doing on the Gulf South, throughout the Gulf South, but then expand. Uh, all of these things are connected. I'm very big on connections. Everything we do, whether it's Mississippi or Mississippi and Louisiana or the Gulf South or the Gulf entirely or transatlantic, everything's connected and the stories that you tell are always connected. So yeah. they knew what they were doing when they were pitching it to me. Well, they hit the right mark and that's really great. And and I think you're 100% right. We, we feel the same way about coastal issues is you have to look at the, the broad landscape of how human beings live, work, and and create on the coast. And it's not just about ports, and it's not just about real estate, and it's not just about fisheries. It's the fabric of the community and our interaction with this space. That's uh, what we try to do on Coastal News today by taking a look at the energy industry. At the same time, we're looking at environmental advocacy uh, because the stories and the richness of our uh, role along the coast is incredibly complicated and I think fascinating. I think it's absolutely interesting as hell. Um, I'm curious that you guys are out there talking to these communities, dealing with what can be tragic losses of communities and history and culture. Uh, is, it an, is it an upbeat kind of thing? How does it feel to do it? And, and do you have a sense that the, the fabric of these communities is going to survive? Can everybody kind of comment on that? Are we is it? I, I'm trying. I'm trying not to feel depressed about this. <laughs> it's easy to be depressed. We've Don and I have interviewed people who were victims of Hurricane Rita and people who've lost everything. Uh, and 
it's hard not to be depressed when you hear the stories of individual trauma uh, that have basically turned people's lives on its head, uh, on their heads. It's, um, but on the other hand, it's hard not to be inspired by the the stories of courage, people who are willing who are willing to face these challenges head on, um, never flinching. Uh, they're truly inspirational, and I, I think as we look at a situation, an environment where we're we're all in the same boat facing major environmental challenges, it's important to have role models like these people that we can point to as beacons for us to follow behind. Fabulous. I'd like to add, you know, to what Carl was saying, and if you look at really the colonization of Louisiana, we've always had some tragedy or something going on, some sort of environmental impact to our landscape. It's dynamic. It's a delta. Things are going to happen. But what's important to me is these stories can be sad as you collect them. But what comes out on the other side is the stories of resiliency, how strong Louisiana is, who we are as a people, how we help one another get through these emotional and environmental impacts. Yeah, I would just... uh echo what you've heard from Carl and Jessica um, the communities I've worked with I mean there's there's a huge amount of concern about these issues uh, there's a huge amount of you know wanting to be heard and provide meaningful input into the solutions um, but at the same time on the other hand there's a, a lot of hope and I think that hope springs from a confidence that these people have the people I've worked with in these vulnerable communities and they're adaptation capacity that has been honed over generations and like Jessica just mentioned Louisiana coast is always changing and so they have that confidence that they can adapt in whatever form that may be whether it's resettlement whether it's adaptation measures in place raising your house or working with outsiders like us or me anyway I know y'all are more local um, so uh, so yeah I think there's that that hope that permeates all the communities I've worked with When you consider the population of South Louisiana, the one thing that resonated early on in this conference was the word heart. This is a region that has heart. They understand the meaning of the science, but you have to include them in the dialogue. And I'll give you an example. There's a community in Southwest Louisiana, Cameron, devastated by Rita. 6,000 people had to be evacuated. About a year and a half later, there was a tornado in Moore, Oklahoma. And the local people got together and said, we've done this, we gotta do something. So in 24 hours, they generated nearly $30,000. They hooked up their mobile barbecue units and they caravaned a motor, uh, Moore, Oklahoma. They appeared unannounced. They set up food. They set up a tent, they put on Cajun music, and they told them how to dance. And those Okies, who are two 
conservative in the first place, <laughs> said, who are these people? And they said, Matt, we're from South Louisiana. We come to help. We've been there. Wow. We've done it. You will survive. So let's eat and dance. The Man. mayor of Moore, Oklahoma, found Cameron, Louisiana, and said, thank you. Do I need to define heart any other way? Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, the team of folks from Louisiana Sea Grant, uh, along with the director of the University Press of Mississippi, the folks who are down on the coast, I'd say slogging through the marshes and talking to the people and trying to figure out how to preserve something really special on the American shoreline. Uh, thanks for being on the program. It's The series is called America's Third Coast. And Craig, for folks who are interested in the books and how to get it and learn more, can you give them a, a, a rundown? Absolutely. The books are available everywhere. The books are uh, at your local bookstore on our website. Uh, if you feel like you have to go to Amazon, they're all there as well. And of course, these are all available as print and as ebooks. So, and your local library. And can you can you just search for America's Third Coast? Would that get you to the series? There's about six or seven books here and more to come. That's exactly right. And yeah, search for the series name or search for the University Press of Mississippi. And uh, there's seven books that are published. There's four books in process, including two by some of the folks that we've just been talking with. And uh, hopefully many, many more to come. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Craig Gill, director of the University Press of Mississippi. Uh, Jessica Schechtsneider from Louisiana Sea Grant, who's working on the cemeteries issue. Matthew Bethel, also with Sea Grant, working on tribal and community uh, input into the process. Carl Basso with EAUX. I know a good Cajun name when I see it. Uh, all, and, and his compatriot, Don Davis, Dan Davis, who are working on uh, the shrimp industry and the history of the Louisiana coast. What a cool interview. Thanks, you guys. It's our pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.